you have your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and as you turn there, I just want to say thanks for allowing me to be away for the last couple of weeks. I've been in New Zealand, a beautiful country. It's difficult to be away from my family, and even more difficult at times on a Sunday to be away from our church. This is where I want to be each and every Sunday, but it is neat to be able to travel around the globe and preach in like-minded pulpits. We have about 12 to 15 master's seminary graduates throughout New Zealand, so I was able to do some ministry in three different churches, kind of scattered throughout the country. The main event was a Bible um, evangelism um, opportunity at a sports camp where I was able to preach through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, about 300 students gather from all over the country to play sports. They come to play rugby, which I did not play this time. Last time I tried it and didn't like it. <laughs> so uh, they played, uh, you know, field hockey, basketball, netball, running, cycling, all kinds of things. And so uh, basically as they're playing sports, they have a couple of sessions through the day of preaching. So I was able to just preach evangelistically through Ephesians 2. It's a great time together with our brothers and sisters in New Zealand. Then I went to join Mark Watson, who pastors a church in New Plymouth, along with Daryl Burling. Both of those guys were interns here when I arrived back in 2013. And so they're doing a great job with their church plan in New Plymouth. They wanted me to tell you guys hello. And I know a lot of you have come since they were here, but for those of you who remember them, they're doing fantastic. Keep praying for Mark and Daryl as they are uh, in the midst of a church plant. And then I spent a little bit of time at a Reformation conference on the second weekend I was there in Rotorua, which is a nice area there in New Zealand with another master's graduate preaching on the Reformation and why it matters today. So it was a great trip, great opportunity. Thanks again for allowing me to be gone, and I'm ha so happy to be back with you guys this morning. I was able to listen to Josh Dozero's message on Psalm 23, thought he did a great job, and I really enjoyed Tim Drum's message last week on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Those were fantastic messages. I was so proud of Tim as I've uh, seen him since he was a youth. I don't know if you guys know that, but I used to be Tim's youth pastor, and uh, I, saw, I knew him since he's been like 19 years old. And it's uh, just neat to see him growing in the Lord and uh, finishing up seminary and just doing a masterful job, I thought, last week handling that text in Sola Scriptura. So we're so blessed here in uh, the Placerita pulpit to have such great preachers when I'm out of town. And so that's what makes me feel comfortable going because I know you're going to be well-fed uh, when I'm going. In fact, sometimes some of you guys say, oh, last week was so good. Did you have to come back? so soon. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody said that, but I know some of you might be thinking it now, but it's a great, uh, great opportunity for those guys, and I uh, just want to say how excited I am about finishing up John chapter 6. So we're actually not going to finish this morning, but next week we're in John chapter 6 towards the end here of this great book, and we've been looking at this message of Christ, <clears throat> what many call the bread of life sermon. So here at the end of chapter 6, we get into a very difficult section where what he says is hard for a lot of people to believe. That's the title for this morning's sermon, The Difficulty of Belief. And this morning, we're just going to look at verses 60 through 65 here in John chapter 6. The Apostle John writes this, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it is, who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive into this text, to remind, uh, be reminded of what we've been studying through this glorious message that Jesus gives to those in the first century about him being the bread of life. And I pray as we look and venture now into this particular portion of this discourse that we would understand what it's meant by it being hard to believe. So many in that time and even today would say it's so difficult to believe in these things that Christ teaches. So help us to understand this text and I pray you would bring it home in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in life, from time to time, you'll hear something that will be so outlandish or so peculiar or so different, you've never heard something like that before, that you might respond by saying, wow, that's really hard to believe. And that can happen just in everyday life, or that can happen when you look at various trivia. For example, let me give you a few examples of things I think are kind of hard to believe. If you were to remove all of the empty space from the atoms that make up every human on earth, the entire world population could fit into one apple. That's hard to believe. I didn't know there was that much space between atoms of all the humans in the world. But apparently, we could all fit into one apple if you got rid of all the space. I know some of you don't believe it. You're looking skeptical out there. How about this fact? Saturn's rings are only between 30 and 300 feet thick. Kind of hard to believe. When I see Saturn and I see those big rings, you'd think those things would be a lot thicker than that, right? How about this? This came up in our house this week. Lisa found some honey in the cupboard, and she's like, baby, do you think this honey is still good? And I think, I said, honey, I think honey lasts forever. So I did a little research on it. Sure enough, honey does not spoil. You could feasibly eat 5,000-year-old honey. Pretty amazing, isn't it? A full head of human hair is strong enough to support 12 tons. That doesn't mean, brothers, that you can grab your sisters by the head and drag them around the room, all right? But it just means that a full head of hair could support up to 12 times. It's hard to believe, right? How about this one? Neil Armstrong went through U.S. customs in Honolulu, Hawaii on the way back from the moon. Hard to believe. He had to re-enter America since he was out of the country. Most of you probably heard that your iPhone or whatever smartphone you, has, you have has the same amount of technology or even more so than when we put the first man on the moon. All right there in the palm of your hand. Hard to believe. How about this? Saudi Arabia imports camels from Australia. Hard to believe. Elvis was a natural blonde. Hard to believe, right? Do, do your research. You'll see these things. I'm telling you. Einstein's autopsy pathologist stole his brain and kept it for 40 years before returning it. I guess he thought he could get smarter if he just had his brain in his lab there. Vending machines have killed more people in America than sharks. Vending machines. Watch out when you get a Coke or that snack this week. It's hard to believe that Hitler is mentioned by Congress around 7.7 times a month. Interesting, isn't it? It's hard to believe to me that the Dodgers lost the World Series. That was really hard for me to believe and accept. Hard for me to believe this week I got in a car wreck. I was traveling through a yellow light trying to get through, and this other person's coming this way, and they turn left right in front of me. Hard to believe. 
I uh, had, a, had a, my car totaled, I think. I just kind of burned my hand a little bit from the airbag coming out. Can I, can I hear a little sympathy, please? Sympathy. Thank you. It's hard to believe, right? I mean, when you're in a car wreck, it's kind of like you replay that over and over in your mind. Like, I can't believe that. I can't believe I, I should, maybe I should have stopped, or I can't believe he turned left in front of me. I can't believe I hit him. I can't believe my car got totaled. It's hard to believe different things in life. And we may have a hard time believing things that happen on earth, but we shouldn't provide that same skepticism to believing spiritual things that God tells us about from heaven. If we're so skeptical about spiritual things, then it could be that we would be labeled in this text to say, you know what, Jesus, that's hard to believe. It's hard to believe what God says in his word. And that is true from a natural standpoint. It's hard to believe that God's eternal. I remember asking my parents, so, you know, who was God's parents? And they're like, nobody. God's always been forever and ever. And you're like trying to figure that out. Well, how could God always have been forever and ever? Like, when was his starting point? Or when's the end coming that you live forever in eternity future? It's kind of hard to believe. It's hard to believe that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, would become Jesus Christ in the flesh. It's hard for us to believe the incarnation. It's hard for us to believe the crucifixion or hard to believe the resurrection. It's hard to believe that, that God would raise him from the dead and that, that that's the means of eternal life. That could be hard to believe. In fact, this week, we were watching that movie, The Case for Christ, the story of Lee Strobel, a uh, Chicago Tribune journalist who was tr- set out to disprove the resurrection. And as he's doing all of his research about Jesus Christ and the historical truth of the gospel, he got converted. It's an incredible uh, film. It's a great, uh, a great book, and then it's been created into a film. I'd, I'd encourage you to see it. It's not, it's not perfect. No movie is, but I thought they did a great job just showing how hard it is to believe apart from the sovereign grace of God opening your heart and mind so that you can see with spiritual eyes what you can't necessarily see with physical eyes. And that's what this text is about this morning, that we're going to be looking at the truth about the difficulty of belief. And so this morning, I want to simply give you four headings that help frame this truth that believing in God can be a very difficult thing to do. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first major heading is this, hard to believe. That's what we're talking about, and that's what verse 60 says. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a, what? Hard saying. Who can listen to it? So first, let me just remind you a little bit about John chapter 6. I would say that there are three types of people listening to Christ's message. There are the Jews. There are the disciples who are mentioned in this passage, 60 through 65. And then next week, we'll look at the 12 disciples. We have the Jews, total skeptics. You have the disciples, some who are going to stay with Christ and others who are going to walk away. And then you have the 12, and Jesus says in verse 70, and even one of them was a devil. So all the people listening to Jesus are measuring every word that he says and really contemplating whether or not they're going to believe because it's hard to believe somebody who's telling you things that you've never heard before. And so when the disciples say, this is a hard saying, They're just being honest, and it's hard for us to really believe what you're telling us. In fact, that word hard in the original language is the word scleros, and if you're in the medical world, it's the same word that we get our medical term sclerosis from. Sclerosis is a hardening of any body tissue. This is particularly dangerous when doctors talk about arteriosclerosis, and arteriosclerosis is a hardening or a thickening of the internal walls of the arteries. 
The condition can occur because of fatty deposits of the inner lining of arteries or calcification of the wall of the arteries or thickening of the muscular wall of the arteries from chronically elevated blood pressure. And when arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries, affects your coronary arteries, that would be the arteries that provide blood to the heart muscle, a shortage of oxygen then happens, which may lead to a heart attack. And I've seen this hundreds of times. You guys know I worked as a PA in cardiovascular and thoracic surgery. And so many times as we're operating on the heart doing bypasses, the surgeon would say, hey, Adam, fill of this coronary artery right here on the heart. Feel how hard that is. And even though it's the hardening of the internal wall of the artery and blocks blood from flowing through, if you place your finger on the outside of the heart and on the outside of those arteries, you can feel with your finger how hard those arteries can be. And you're like, oh, man, I hope my arteries aren't like that. I hope mine are nice and soft because this guy's got some hard arteries. And this is what we're talking about. This is the word here when his disciples are saying, Jesus, this is hard to believe. It's hard for me to believe. And it's serious when it's physical arteries of the heart, but even more serious when there's spiritual hardening taking place. And so let me give you four reasons or four subpoints under this first heading of why these disciples were having a hard time believing. The first one is this. They were more interested in the physical than in the spiritual. These disciples, these followers of Christ, are more interested in the physical than they are in the spiritual. In fact, if you look back and chapter 6 here, verses 14 and 15, they just wanted to make Jesus king. When they saw how he had fed the 5,000, they said, indeed, this is the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so we see that it's hard for the disciples to believe in Christ because they just wanted to focus on physical things like him being king, or they're interested in food more than they're interested in saving faith. Look at verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of your fill of the loaves. In other words, he's saying, look, you guys just care about the physical stuff like me being king, having enough free food. That's all you care about. They're also interested in coercing more miracles from Jesus. In verse 30 and 31, they say to Christ, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? In other words, they're trying to get Jesus to do more. They want to see more physical miracles in order that they might believe. And they challenge him saying, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Uh, So what can you do, Jesus? You just fed 5,000, but our fathers fed 2 million in the wilderness when they fed Israel. And so these are some reasons why it was hard for them to believe. They're so focused on physical things like political power, food, and seeing great physical feats that they are interested in that more so than they're interested in really hearing the words of Christ. The second reason why it's hard for these disciples to believe is that they would not exchange, that's your next blank, they would not exchange Moses for Jesus. They were very proud of Moses, and in many ways, rightly so. He was a mediator between a holy God and sinful man. He did write the first five books of our Old Testament. He was a great example in so many ways, and yet they practically worshiped Moses, thinking of him as being more authoritative than Jesus himself. And so in John 6, verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread, from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And so Jesus is just saying, hey, look, I'm better than Moses. Moses was a type of mediator, 
but he was only human and he was sinful. In fact, he never even entered into the promised land because of his own sin. And now Jesus is saying, I will take you all the way to the promised land, and I'm the true bread. That's just a physical story about a spiritual truth and being the true bread. And if you eat of this bread, you'll live forever. Get your focus off of Moses and put it on Christ. Put it on me and my teaching and the the disciples, those who are following Jesus here. Some of them are like, that's hard to believe. Hard to believe that you think you're better than Moses. Hard to believe that you think you're all that. I don't know if we want to do that or not. A third reason why it was hard to believe is they were unwilling. They were unwilling to relinquish their own control. They liked the status of their religion just like it was. They, in fact, helped build out more laws man-made laws to add to God's law that made them feel good about themselves. They were self-righteous Jews, and they wanted to make a king physically reign over them in the way that would remind them of the glory years of King Saul and King David. That's what they wanted Christ to be. And when Christ came in humility, and Christ came as an example, and when Christ came as a sacrifice, they didn't like it. And so they're unwilling to let Jesus control because they think they're just as good as he is. In fact, if you look at verse 42, they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In other words, who does he think he is? We know his dad. We know his mom. In fact, can anything really good come out of Nazareth? Who does this guy think? We're not going to give him control of our Jewish religion. We're going to let that be Moses and the other Old Testament prophets, not this man, Jesus, who's showing up, telling us all that. It's hard to believe in him because I'm not willing to give up control. Or fourthly, they could not accept the extended metaphor of the bread. This is the real issue in the immediate context. If you remember last time we were in this passage, Jesus takes the metaphor of being the true bread from heaven, the bread of life, and he extends that metaphor by saying this in verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In other words, the Israelites would have been immediately frustrated and turned off by Christ's cannibalistic type saying, which he's never encouraging cannibalism. It's a spiritual metaphor of the atonement of the fact that unless Christ dies in your place and is raised from the dead, then you have no life, that you've got to accept all of Christ, not just as a good man and a good teacher, but as the propitiation that would appease the wrath of God through his flesh and his blood. And in case you didn't get that, Jesus continues to say the same thing. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's almost like Christ is saying, in case you didn't hear what I said, I'm going to repeat myself four times in these four verses to make sure you understand that you better eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You better accept my full atoning sacrifice in order to be saved, which means the sacrifices of the Old Testament are no good, which means all of your obedience of following Old Covenant rules and rituals is no good which means anything that you could ever do to build righteousness for yourself in order to earn saving grace with God is no good. 
So they're hard in their hearts as they're listening to him. And maybe the same is true of you today. Maybe you're here today and you're like, well, Adam, actually, it's hard for me to believe. In the gospel, I mean, that's miraculous stuff. And I'm more scientific in my thinking. I mean, I can't really believe that life could come from non-living matter. And so somehow it must have evolved over time. How, I don't know. But I just can't believe it was a miracle. How about you this morning? Can you handle the words of Christ? Or is your heart hard? Do you have spiritual coronary artery disease? The least that Jesus asks of you is everything. There's no halfway with Christ. You can't say, well, I kind of believe, half-heartedly believe. Well, I believe in some of Christ, but not all of Christ. No, no, it's all or nothing. In order to be a born-again believer, you must relinquish all of you for all of him. And this is what was rubbing these disciples wrong, and this, is, frankly, is the rub today. As long as it's fun, as long as it's you know, similar to the world and an upbeat message of nice things about your self-esteem, then it's easy for people to come to church. But as soon as somebody opens the book and starts preaching the Word of God like Jesus preached it, people say, I'm out of here. That's too radical. That's too crazy. I mean, that is too extreme. I can't deal with that. That's what's happening to these disciples, and it may be what's happening to you. Does Jesus have your whole heart? He wants all of your finances. He wants your love life. He wants your material possessions, your goals, your dreams, your language that you use, your emotions. He wants your whole heart. He wants to give you a brand new heart, and yet it can be hard to believe. A second heading that addresses the difficulty of belief is the idea of this is actually offensive. Number two, there in your outline, taking an offense. Because here's how these disciples are responding, verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? What we're really learning here is your next blank says, not all disciples are true disciples. They're not. Not everybody who's mentioned as a disciple is a true disciple. The word disciple in its most basic sense means a follower or a student. Moses had disciples. Does it mean they were all born again? John the Baptist had disciples, and some of them favored John the Baptist over Christ. Paul had disciples, and they would get in fights about whether it was Paul or Apollos who was the better. Jesus had disciples, but they weren't necessarily born again, and we'll see in this text that some of them walked away. Some of those that were following, just for external reasons that had not really had an internal transformation, walked away from Christ. And we read about this earlier in the same gospel, John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. You know what it's saying? While many people believed in his name, they didn't really believe. And Jesus didn't really entrust himself to them because he knew deep down in their hearts they had not yet been truly converted. Jesus knew full well that some of these disciples that were following him were not really following him. It's like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you get that? There are people who will say, I believe in the Lord. I trust in the Lord, Lord, Lord. And Jesus himself warns us, not everybody who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. But 
the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so one of the major tests to see whether or not you're a Christian is not only is it what you say, but it's what you do. It's evaluating your life. The evidence is in how you live. The proof is in the pudding. The, the proof is in the fruit that you bear out in your life. And so many people today in various denominations and even in a Roman Catholic church would say, oh, I believe in the gospel. But if they're not believing in the gospel alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, then it may be that there's no true conversion. True conversion doesn't just mean you say you believe or you say you like Jesus or you're inspired by the way he lived. No, true disciples are truly repentant and truly repentant disciples have been converted by the grace of God alone through Christ alone. And once you're converted by the grace of God alone through Christ alone, then you want to do the work that God has prepared beforehand that you would walk in it. It's not something you do to earn salvation. It just evidences the fact that you've been converted. You've been regenerated, and when that happens in your heart and in your life, you'll be a true disciple, and yet here we're realizing just in this text that not all disciples are true disciples, but we're also realizing here that there's some of these quote-unquote disciples who are grumbling, that's your next blank, they're grumbling against Jesus, and that's a bad thing. You don't grumble against the Son of God, and yet we read here in 61, he knew that the disciples were grumbling about this. This word grumbling means to murmur, it means to complain, to express one's discontent. These disciples were not pleased with Jesus. They were frustrated with Him. They were not enjoying listening to the words of Christ, and they wanted uh, wanted Him to change and adapt Himself to them. You know, it would be like if your favorite team's playing a game and you're disappointed in the coach for not changing out a player or calling a timeout or whatever, you start to grumble, like, "Ah, I can't believe they did that. And that's how we become about Christ. We begin to grumble at what Christ is doing and what Jesus is calling for is a totally exchanged life. He's calling for a complete denial of ourselves. It's his life for our life. But these Jews and these disciples here, they like their life just like it was. And so they continue just to grumble, just to chip away at what Jesus is saying. They're not fully converted, so they're grumbling John 6, 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Luke 15, 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him, eats with them. They didn't like what Jesus said. They didn't like what Jesus did. He's hanging out with sinners. Philippians 2, 14 cautions us to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so to get down to it here, what we're really saying is, your next blank, the gospel of Christ offends people. That's the problem. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it offends so many people. And that's why Jesus asks here at the end of verse 61, do you take offense at this? This word offense is the word scandalizo, which is where we get our word scandalous from. This word means to cause someone to experience anger and shock because of what has been said or done. You hear about something and you're like, oh, that's a scandal. These Pharisees are upset. They are in shock and they are angry at Jesus. This word scandalizo can also mean to become a stumbling block. This word scandalizo can also mean to cause someone to walk away from the faith altogether. In fact, look at how this word is used in a couple of different contexts. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 
13.57, the same word, scandalizo, here is used about Jesus when he's preaching the gospel in his hometown of Nazareth in Matthew 13.57, and they took offense at him. They thought it was scandalous that this man who had grown up among them would somehow claim to be fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that, that sinners could be liberated because of Christ. They took offense at him, and Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Turn to Matthew 15, you'll see it used again, the word scandalizo, or the idea of taking offense. Matthew 15, 11, and 12, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? In other words, the Pharisees were focused on old covenant law, about what you could eat, what you could not eat, and other rituals. Jesus said it's not about that. It's not about what goes into the mouth. It's what comes out of the mouth because it's out of the overflow of the mouth that the heart's really speaking. So Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the issue, and in doing that, he indicts the Pharisees saying you shouldn't worry about old covenant law anymore because we're under a new covenant, and the focus is now on your heart, not on your actions, and they get offended. They don't like what he's saying. He's confronting them, and they like it just the way it is because they're comfortable in their self-styled religion of patting themselves on the back for all the things that they do. So this word scandalizo can also refer to somebody not who's just offended, but someone who walks away altogether. Look with me, if you will, at Matthew 13, 21. We'll see the same word, offense or scandalizo, translated a different way, Matthew 13, 21. Jesus here is talking, and he says, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is in the parable of the seed uh, that is sown on the rocky ground, and Jesus is saying when the seed is sown on the rocky ground and it doesn't really take root, that, that person's going to fall away, scandalizo. That person is going to totally walk away from the gospel because it was never truly growing in that individual. It's in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24. Look at Matthew 24:10 when Jesus is warning us about the great tribulation that will come, that he talks about others who will fall away, scandalizo, and then many, Matthew 24:10, will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. What we're saying is the word scandalizo can mean just to cause to stumble or cause an offense, or it can also mean to cause to fall completely away. So what Jesus is saying back in John 6 is he's saying, hey, do you take offense at this? He's almost saying, are you just kind of stumbling over this? Are you about to walk away from me? Are you just like a little bit offended and angry because I'm kind of busting your chops right now of your old time religion? Or are you about to walk away from me all together. I'll tell you what's really scandalous. What's scandalous is that a loving God would send His Son and die on the cross for a sinner like me. I want to talk about a scandal. A scandal is I deserve hell. I deserve the judgment of God. The wages of my sin is death, and yet God would look upon a sinner like me and say, you know what? I'm going to forgive that person. I'm going to love that person. I shed the blood of my Son for him. That's scandalous. Scandalous is the idea that the just has been sacrificed for me. That's scandalous. And yet these people are offended as G Jesus is the cornerstone that they, they reject him. 
they don't want him, they don't like him, they're offended. Some are just simply upset and angry, but others will walk away altogether. And so Jesus, as he's already keeps going a little deeper and a little deeper in the next subpoint, only the Son of Man can ascend into heaven. And what happens here in verse 63, or 62 rather, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, Jesus is saying, look, if you're offended about what I've been saying about eating of my flesh and drinking of my blood, you're going to be more offended when I tell you I'm about to ascend back into heaven. Just blows their mind again. They can't believe that he first of all claimed to come from heaven down to earth, but what man who's lived on earth is going to somehow ascend into heaven? And yet Jesus had taught us this time and time again. John 3, verse 13, Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So in other words, Jesus is already prophesying he's descended from heaven. He will be ascending back to heaven. He taught us about this in John 1, 51, when he's talking to Nathaniel. We think Nathaniel might have been having his quiet time from Genesis 28, talking about the story of Jacob seeing angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And basically what Jesus says is like, that whole story is about me. Because in John 1:51 he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, the ladder to heaven is Jesus. He's the mediator. He comes down from heaven. He goes back to heaven. That's how you mediate. You mediate by being a bridge between a holy God and sinful man. So Jesus is getting their attention even more than drinking his blood by saying, I'm going back into heaven. And they're thinking, how can he say that? That's blasphemous from a blind Jewish perspective. They can't believe Jesus is claiming to be the same as God. And so they take great offense at him. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're offended by the gospel of Christ. I found that most people are offended by the exclusivity of Christ. As I was on the plane and a couple of the flights back and forth to New Zealand, I'm sharing the gospel with this lady. She'd been very nice. We've been talking about America, New Zealand, and just having a great conversation. And all of a sudden, it turns spiritual. And I'm like starting to share the gospel with her and just say, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm here to preach at this camp to these young people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know there's salvation in none other than Christ? Do you know Christ? She's like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. You know, just all of a sudden, it went from like pleasantry, nice conversation to like, you know, end of conversation. You've had that happen to you, right? You're at work, you're talking to a neighbor, all of a sudden you're trying just to transition into some type of gospel story of Christ coming and living and dying and being resurrected, and it's only through Him. That's what gets people upset today, right? It's not politically correct. It's not a pluralism. It's not, well, everybody has the same belief, and if they're sincere and they're sincere belief, then somehow it all goes. No, it doesn't all lead to heaven. Jesus is, I am the mediator. If you want to see the Father, you've got to ascend and descend on the mediator, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And when he's saying this, people are offended. They're offended at him. This is why it's hard to believe. A third heading of why it's hard to believe is just noticing here, number three, the helplessness of the flesh. And guess what? Your flesh isn't helping you out one bit. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. In other words, don't try to figure it out with your brain. Don't try to figure it out ultimately by human answers and human logic or feelings. The flesh is no help at all. The worst, the words, excuse me, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so let's look at a couple of subpoints here. Life in the spirit. 
life in the Spirit. That's how life comes. Life does not come from the flesh, not eternal life. Life comes from the Spirit. John 1.13 talks about to become a children of God, that you had to be born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be born again, you have to be born of God. You don't get born again by being born again in the flesh. Jesus said to Nicodemus, that which is born in the flesh is flesh, and that which is born in the spirit is spirit. Translation, you can't get to heaven by your own good works. It's not about the works of the flesh. It's got to be the spirit. In fact, the next blank says there's death in the flesh. Your flesh leads you to death. When Jesus is talking to Peter, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The flesh doesn't reveal the truth. The flesh distracts you. The flesh deceives you. The flesh is going to kill you. It's only through the spirit that one can be made alive. I love the quote here from A.W. Pink. It's on the back of your sheet under the questions there on this passage. He says, what we need is less anecdotal preaching, less rhetorical embellishment, less reliance upon logic, and more direct, plain, pointed, simple declaration and exposition of the word itself. Sinners will never be saved without this. The flesh profiteth nothing. Just saying, we, we just need straight preaching. That's what Jesus did, just straight up. It's life or death. It's heaven or hell. It's Christ or the world's way. And if you want to be born again, you must come and eat of the flesh of Jesus and drink of his blood and realize that he came down from heaven. He's heading back to heaven. In fact, the next blank says it's the words of Jesus that are spirit and life. There at the end of verse 63, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You know what? Most people can accept many of the works of Jesus. Maybe not the miraculous ones, but they can accept other works of Jesus, such as he was a nice person, he ate with sinners, he prayed for people, he seemed to be benevolent-oriented, and so they can go with that. But as soon as they start looking at Jesus' words, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. They walk away from it. They're like, I can't handle that. As long as he's just doing good things, I could kind of get into Jesus. But if I've got to get into the words of Jesus and not just evaluate the works of Jesus, then I, I don't know if I really want to be a part. In fact, I was listening to John MacArthur on this text, and he say, said the reason that I never get invited to Larry King anymore is because when I'm on Larry King, I don't just talk about the works of Jesus. I talk about the words of Jesus. And when I talk about the words of Jesus and his exclusivity of the solus Christus Reformation doctrine, Christ alone, people tune me out. They no longer want to continue the conversation. Are you looking to the words of Christ? Yes, we must look to the work of redemption. Certainly, uh, all, all that he did is invaluable, namely his death and resurrection, but we also got to look to the words of Christ, which just points us to that very fact that it's only through Christ that you can be born again. We can't just be inspired by a good person. This week I had the opportunity to do a chapel on Eric Little, and I had such a great time of the Chariots of Fire movie, Eric Little, the runner who in 1924 won a gold medal in the Olympics in Paris. And you know what he did the next year, 1925, one year later after he won that incredible gold medal. Remember, he pulled out of the 100-meter dash because it was on a Sunday, ran the 400 meters, won the gold medal. Attention of the world is on this guy. Next year, he goes back to China 
where he's from, where he was born and lived the first five years of his life to be a missionary, to share the gospel with other people. And basically, the research I was doing said everybody loved Eric Little, but they were upset when he left the running career that he was developing and abandoned this sport in order to go back to China. People are like, what is he doing? People are offended he didn't run on Sunday. They were upset at him. They were upset at the words of Eric Little pointing to it's only in Christ can one have saving faith. What I'm trying to say is we can be enamored or inspired by a lot of different people, even Christ himself, but if we're not looking to the words of Christ that he's the only way to heaven, then we will not have eternal life. Last heading, no one can come to Christ. Well, no wonder it's hard to believe because here in verse 64 and 65, he's like, nobody can even come to me. For there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning whose those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Well, if you look at that from a closed heart point of view, you could be like, well, I don't even have a chance unless God draws me. It's exactly what he's saying. You don't have a chance unless God opens your eyes. That's why faith is faith. That's why grace is grace. You can't get there on your own. No amount of your own effort or your own work will get there. It's not a lack, your next blank, of information. It's not a lack of information. It's a lack of faith. You could have all the information in the world of the gospel, Old Testament, New Testament. You could be a scholar. But if you lack faith, there's no heaven for you because grace comes through faith, which is given by God to those that he chooses to be born again. Martin Luther didn't get this until he was converted. He kept trying to earn his way to heaven by his own work and own effort until he finally studied Romans 1.17, that the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith, meaning you become righteous by faith in Christ. And what he did, you can't get there by your own works. Your last blank says, not according to the will of man, salvation that is. It's not according to the will of man, but according to the will of God. Listen to this quote by J.C. Ryle. There is a tendency in many minds to attach an excessive importance to the outward, visible, or doing part of religion. They seem to think that the sum and substance of Christianity consists in baptism and the supper of the Lord in public ceremonies and forms and appeals to the eye and ear and bodily excitement. Surely they forget that it is the Spirit that quickeneth and that the flesh profiteth nothing. It is not so much by noisy public demonstrations as by the still, quiet work of the Holy Ghost on hearts that God causes which prospers. In other words, salvation is a work of God. It's God's work, and that's what verse 65 is saying as he's kind of restating John 6, Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I have good news for you this morning. God is drawing in this service through the preaching of the Word of God. God is drawing in this moment for any sinner who has not been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. He's calling you at this moment out of darkness, out of your sin, into the light. I had an opportunity when I was in New Zealand to talk to a young man the first day of camp who I knew had been raised in that church, and I asked him, are you dead in your transgressions and sins, or have you been made alive with Christ? And he said, man, I'm dead. I said, what, what do you mean? He's like, man, I don't believe in all this stuff. 
I said, how come? I'm like, you were raised in the church. Like, I know your mom and dad. I know you've heard the gospel your whole life. Why would you not believe? He's like, you know, I'm just going to put it off till later. Kind of want to sow my own wild oats kind of thing, figure it out later in life. Maybe then I'll come back around if I feel like it, but not now. I looked at him and I said, listen to me, the devil's number one way of deceiving young people is by telling them you have tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The Bible says come today to Christ and he will by no means cast you out. Don't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow belongs to the devil. Today is God's day. Come to Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. But throughout the rest of the camp, every time I saw him, I was like, hey, man, I'm praying for you. Praying for you. He'd kind of be like, yeah, yeah. He'd kind of get out of the way. I'm like going through camp. I'm like, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. The last day of camp, he came up to me and he said, I need Christ. I can't get out of my head what you've been preaching all week. I can't get out of my head what you told me on that first day. I need to repent right now. I want to come to Christ. My friends, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a young man. And that work of the Holy Spirit could be at work in you at this very moment. Don't think of it as being hard to believe. Think of it as being impossible to believe apart from the work of Christ, apart from His grace to draw you, yea, even to drag you out of your sin and frustration and your life filled with guilt and shame into the light of the presence of God through Jesus Christ who wipes away every tear, who shows his love for you by being sacrificed on the cross. He says, come and eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Are you willing? The last couple of questions here in the take-home section. Are you willing to, to give up complete control of your life? Maybe that's your problem this morning. Maybe you're not a Jew, but you've formed your own religion, your own thoughts about God, and you don't want to give up control about what you think is true and what makes sense in your mind. And Christ says, abandon it all. Any thoughts you've ever had about eternal life is negligent and helpless apart from the work of the Spirit through the Word of God. You've got to abandon your whole life. Two, are you offended by the gospel or any part of God's Word? I know a lot of people who say, I believe in the cross, I believe in the resurrection, but I'm not going to give up my certain pet sin. And if that's you this morning, then that certain pet sin will be something that keeps you from heaven because you cannot continue in unrepentant sin knowingly and claim to be a Christian. The Bible says that if you're lukewarm, you get spewed out of Christ's mouth, Revelation so the idea here is that we can't be offended by the gospel, but rather understand that our sin is an offense to a holy God, yet he's provided the means of grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And so last question, are you approaching Jesus by the flesh or by the spirit? If you're approaching Jesus by the flesh, then I invite you to get off of that treadmill of works, thinking that somehow if you do more and try harder in your own effort apart from Christ, that you'll somehow reach heaven one day. And instead, realize that it's a finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ, and he offers salvation to all who will call upon him. And that if you would come out of darkness into light by his sovereign grace in your heart and confess your sins and believe that Christ was raised from the dead, you can be saved. It's difficult to believe. In fact, it's impossible 
apart from the grace of God. Ask God to show you his love. Ask God to show you Christ. And you come running to him today and he will not turn you away. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to dive into John chapter 6, such a powerful message of Christ reminding us of his sufficiency, reminding us of he's the only way, reminding us of the seriousness of eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood metaphorically to partake of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, which alone can save us from our sins. Lord, I know it's a hard message, but it's not too hard for those that you've enlightened. It's not too hard for those that you've chosen. It's not too hard for those who see the error of their ways that you would be so kind to open hearts to the gospel message and the love that you've shown through Christ that men and women and boys and girls on this day would reconsider their life before you and come to saving faith, all a gift from you. We pray that you would do a special work of grace in our hearts this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.